All right, we are in a Lenten season right now, um, and during this season, we're trying to slow down, and we're trying to behold the cross, and so we've been walking through the passion narrative, and we're continuing to do so uh, these weeks of Lent. Something took place 2,000 years ago on the outskirts of Jerusalem that changed the course of human history, and we're wanting to take some time and some space to behold that together. And so that's what we're walking through. Um, so far, we've gone through the anointing and the betrayal. Uh, we've talked about the Passover meal and the implications of the lamb not being on the table because the lamb was at the table. And now this week, we're going to get into kind of the period of the middle of the night, what took place overnight. Again, this was a real story that took place. And the real hours took place, real minutes, real space, real time. And so Jesus didn't sleep as he led into uh, the cross the following day. And so he went from uh, an anointing to uh, a meal that led to him praying uh, and getting arrested and being put on trial. And so we're hitting around like 11 p.m. through like 5 a.m. If you want to kind of visualize, that's where we are in this story right now. So real time, real space. I got four points that we're going to work through as we get through the um, Matthew 26. Uh, and the first is this. We're going to see a curveball about Jesus uh, in this first section. Matthew 26, the first point. Jesus was terrified of the cup. We're going to read that together. Matthew 26, verse 36, it says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two, two sons of Zebedee, uh, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Those words, remember those words. We'll get back to them. Sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise let, it, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. Again, middle of the night, crisp air, it's dark outside. They're in this garden that they've been to regularly. It's, it's a, a garden filled with uh, olive trees. And this is the context that we find ourselves in. And he says, my, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He's feeling Something that he hasn't felt up to this point, he falls on his face. So what's happening? He goes on to say, take this cup from me. So we're seeing a side of Jesus that we've never seen up to this point. As we've read through the gospel narrative, in every gospel, we've not seen this side of Jesus that we're seeing right here and right now. Up to this point, Jesus has been completely in control. Nothing has jarred him. 
He's been steady. He's been, up to this point, there's been nothing that's caused him to be derailed like this moment. He experienced something. He sees something. He realizes something, and it totally stuns him. So when it says in the text that he's sorrowful and troubled, it's something that's alarming him. The description here is distressed or troubled to be very sorrowful to the point of death. And so the Greek here for troubled means to be overcome with horror. So when you read that word troubled, don't overlook that he's just kind of a little confused. No, he's overcome with horror. Maybe this image could help you. You're driving down the road and maybe you turn, you're going down Paper Mill Road and you turn and all of a sudden you look out and you see a car of your best friend or a car of somebody you love you love, or your spouse and they're mutilated in a terrible accident. And that moment where your stomach comes up to your throat and that moment where you feel nauseous, that moment when you're, the, the, the physical cloud of horror uh, begins to choke you, that's what Jesus is feeling in this moment. That moment where that feeling gets up into your throat and you feel like you can't breathe. That's what it means when it says that he's troubled. This is not because he's facing the crucifixion. We're going to talk about the cru- crucifixion in a few weeks, and that was terrible, but that's not what he's seeing As he says this, Jesus saw, felt, tasted, sensed something in the garden, and it shook the unshakable. And he desperately asks his father to take this cup from him. We've never seen again Jesus in this way, and he turns to the father, and for the first time, he begins to experience what's supposed to take place on the cross. Again, this regular rhythm, don't forget this, this, we just had a meal last week. It was a meal of Passover, and he became the lamb, the provision of God for our sins. And he's feeling the judgment that's about to take place in that moment, mere hours from now. The abyss, the chasm, the cup of wrath that he will take. See, Jesus was in the garden seeing the the cup of wrath that he was about to drink in our place. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke was a physician And in Luke 22, uh, verse 40, it says, uh, Luke adds some color to what's taking place here. And it says this, he's praying in the garden, same moment, just a different angle of the same event. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So that's a, that's a medical reality. I'm going to try to not butcher this. It's called hemotidrosis. And that's uh, a medical description of what happens in extreme agony and anguish. And in this moment, Jesus begins to sweat blood as he sees what's right before him. And he says, take this cup from me. He begs his father, if there's another way. If there's another way, Father, I want to go that path. Up to this point, he knew why he came. Again, John 1 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had a mission from beginning to end to redeem and ransom the world. But he felt so overcome. And we've felt this before. To a degree, our emotions can take over and we don't know what to do. And our emotions begin to cloud reality sometimes. And, And for Jesus, he was in that same moment. 
he felt what we feel, and he felt that. He said, if there's another way to carry out this mission, please, let's go this path. And there wasn't. See, throughout the Old Testament, there's a, a cup, and it symbolized the, the judgment of God. I'll read two verses that will be on the screen. Uh, Habakkuk 2, 16 says, You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show, show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. It's referencing the judgment of God. Again, in Psalm, I believe it's verse 11 let him rain coals on the wicked fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Again, there's a regular, we can go to many other verses about a cup referencing the judgment. This is the ultimate judgment, justice of God to vindicate and to deal with the issue of sin. See, God is a loving God, yes, but he's also just. And we are thankful that he's just because there are many unjust things that happen in our life and world. And he will deal with all of them to make himself just. He doesn't sweep injustice under the rug. He deals with them, and he dealt with them fully on the cross. He deals with the effect of sin and the sin in and of itself. See, the cross, on the cross, it's where justice took place. So remember, hours just before, sitting at this table, Jesus took the, the four glasses of wine that we talked about last week, and we, we, he reminded his disciples of the story of the Passover. And after that, the third cup, instead of him talking about how the, their forefathers in uh, Egypt were dealing with affliction, he says, no, this is not about our forefathers. I'm going to take on my body. I'm going to deal with your sin, and I'm going to become the lamb for you. This is all a part of this narrative. Jesus would exchange our sin and our shame and our condemnation on himself. The big theological term for this is propitiation. See, what rescues us from sin and shame and death isn't the cross. It isn't the crown of thorns. It's the wrath of God being thrusted upon Jesus and him dealing with our judgment, and us trusting in that as our means of rescue. That is what saves us, not just a Roman crucifix. It is the wrath of God put on Jesus in our place. Like the lamb was the provision on Passover, Jesus is taking our sin, and he sees the cup that he has to drink he foresees this, and he's stunned, and he's confused. And so what does he do? He thrusts himself on the most stable thing in the universe, which leads me to my second point, which is this. God the Father is the most stable reality in our universe. How does Jesus respond? He says, my Father, my Father. He says it two times, and it's implied in the third time when it says that he says the same thing. Three times he cries out to God the Father in the midst of confusion when he doesn't understand what's happening, when his feelings have been taken over, and he doesn't know his left hand from his right. What does he do to provide stability for himself? He cries out to God the Father. He says, Father, I know you know best, and I want to throw my life at your feet. God the Father is the object we put our faith on, trusting that he cares and loves us. I heard uh, somebody um, mention a friend this last week, Tim, Tim Keller quote. He says, worry is the belief that God, is, uh, that God is going to get it wrong. 
Worry is the belief that God is going to get it wrong. And Jesus, instead of going down the path of worry, he says, I'm going to trust that you know me even if I don't feel like I know myself and I, I feel like I can't carry what's before me. See, his life was in the balance, yet he threw his life upon his father. When the junk was hitting the fan, he clings to the most stable reality in the universe. It's interesting to mention that Jesus, in the most uh, exciting moment of his life and the darkest moment of his life, he celebrates with his father. In Luke 10, 21 and 22, I'll read this to you. Uh, the disciples have just come back from going on their first mission, and they are amped. And they come back and they're celebrating. And Jesus says, the, the greatest thing isn't that the demons submitted to you. The greatest thing isn't that you healed. The greatest thing is that your names are written in the book of life. And then he says this. And that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So, in one of the most exciting moments of Jesus' life, he turns to his Father. And he celebrates with his Father. And in the darkest, most painful moment, the most unjust moment in human history, this moment in the garden leading up to the cross, the most unjust moment in human history, Jesus, what does he do? He responds and he clings to his father. In the high points and the low points, he does this. Jesus is teaching us something about what it looks like to follow him. As apprentices, as disciples to Jesus, if we can throw, if he can throw himself on his father in the darkest injustice moment, unjust moment of human history, so can we. Our father is the most stable reality in our universe more stable than finances, more stable than your career path, more stable than the family you dreamed of, more stable of whatever it might be for you, your nest egg, fill in the blank. Our father is stable. I'm not sure what your dad was like. You might not know him. Maybe you know little about him. Maybe when you think of your dad, it's a, a point of pain for you. Maybe you had a wonderful experience with your dad. But you have been adopted into a family where you have a father who moved heaven and earth to bring you into his family. And we have the opportunity to remember that as Jesus reminds us in this moment. The most stable reality in the universe is God the Father. Life may, may feel chaotic for you. Your emotions may feel off. You may feel pressure you haven't felt before. But there's stability. There's stability in God as Father. He cares for you. I don't know how that translates for you. Again, I don't want to bypass this moment. If Jesus can cling to the same Father that he has offered to us in adoption and the darkest moment in human history, so can you, however dark your life might feel right now. Relational pressure, financial pressure, unknowns, decisions that you feel like you need to make, we can cling to God as Father. Amen. Jesus sprints to his Father in the darkest moment because it was the only refuge he had. So Sojourn family, when stress and sorrow arise, we can cling to, to the stability of God 
as father. Which leads to the third point. Jesus accepts the plan and submits to his betrayal and arrest. In Matthew 26, it says this, verse 47. While he was still sleeping, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with the swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friends, do what you came to do. When they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And you will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So the moment happens and is fulfilled where, Jesus, where Judas betrays Jesus. We've talked about that in previous weeks, so I won't go there now. They came with swords and clubs. Think baseball bats. They came with these weapons to try to take this guy as if he's some cold-blooded murderer. And they seek to seize him. And, and Jesus reminds us again in this moment that he's in control. He says, I could totally call forth 12 legions of angels. We read over that because we don't understand the Roman context. This is 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So you do just quick math. We're talking about a ton of angels that were just at his disposal if he was willing. But again, he said, not my will, your will be done. And he sacrificed the power that he had to submit himself to his father. And there's, there's a story within this, and, and, and uh, both John and Luke speak into this. There's a guy named Malchus that we can totally overlook, and he was the servant of the high priest, uh, Caiaphas. And I, I just sometimes want to just wonder what it was like to be Malchus. So Malchus, you're just kind of coming along. Maybe you have a bat in your hand, and all of a sudden, you become the victim of what we find out to be Peter's sword, and his ear gets chopped off. And so you're kind of stunned at this moment. I don't know if this happened to you before, but his ear is now on the ground, and blood's now just kind of pumping right here, and so you got blood. It's messy. You got an ear on the ground, and Jesus, in his kindness, I love this moment. He's about to be arrested. He's about to take the cup of the wrath of God. And he just comes and he picks up Malchus's ear and just puts it back on and heals him. That's what the text says. I'm just, I'm just imagining Malchus. You're about to arrest this dude and you see this moment transpire. I mean, I'm just imagining the terror and the awe of this man that's about to be arrested. This is what we see in this text and all the commotion. What was it like to be Malchus? See, each gospel, uh, the writers approach this text, the story of the passion narrative differently. Matthew, his emphasis is, is Jesus wrestling with God and submitting and accepting the will of God that's found in the scripture. The gospel of John gives us a different account. I think it's just worth mentioning. Um, there, there's a level of flex that Jesus provides in John 18 that I just love and I want to mention to you. And so uh, John is where Matthew's emphasizing Jesus submitting to the will of the Father, uh, Jesus fulfilling the scripture. 
Um, John gives us the deity of Jesus in this moment. I would love to just read a few verses in John 18, verse 1 and following. It says, when Jesus has spoken these words, this is, again, he's in the garden about to get arrested. He went out with his disciples across the Kadron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and and weapons. And this is where John kind of zooms in a bit here. He says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. So he, he, John's depiction is he comes forth, you got, you got lanterns and bats and weapons all right before him. And he comes up and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he responds and he says, I am he. Or the actual translation would be I am, which would be ego and me, which is a reference to uh, Exodus 3, where Moses asks Yahweh, who do I say sent me? And he says, I am. Jesus says the same phrase. Um, he says, I am he. Jesus, Jesus who betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Again, John gives us a different angle of the deity of Jesus. He is in the driver's seat. He asks, who do you seek? And he says, I am. I am that I am is what he's referencing, which is, again, it's pointing to who Yahweh is. And they fall to the ground in that moment. And then he presses them a bit in sarcasm. He says, who are you seeking? As they're sitting on the ground. Again, there's this moment of the power of Jesus taking place even hours before he goes forth and is crucified. So there's this tension that he's in control, and yet he's terrified, which brings us to the fourth and final point, which is this. Jesus declares who he is and is therefore therefore sentenced to death. Let's read Matthew 26, 57 and following. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered. He deserves death. Then they spit in his face, struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Jesus declares who he is and therefore is sentenced to death. 
So he's led to the Sanhedrin, which is the council. And he stands before the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas. This is pseudo-trial in the middle of the night takes place. There's nothing more dramatic than to be on trial for your life and to be put before the stands. And yet Jesus is in this moment. And finally, the high priest, he comes to Jesus and he begins to try to push him and ask him these questions. And then directly he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. Are these claims true? See, Jews don't see God the way Greeks see God. And we probably would fit more in the Greek Western camp. Hebrews believed that there was one supreme God who created all things, who sustains all things, and who rules over all things. The Hebrew God was the one supreme God. In the Greek tradition, there were many gods that differed from different, um, in different degrees. You had Zeus, you had Hermes, you had Apollo, you had all these different ones that had different powers at different levels. So for the high priest to make this statement, he's asking Jesus a question about his deity. Not if he's 60% God or 90% God. It's either he's God or he's not. And he's asking him this question. Jesus responds. He says, you have said so. And then he says, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus' response is baffling. He claims to be God and he claims that he is going to be judge over the human judge that's judging him. That he should be on the judgment seat. See, what Jesus is saying as he goes before Caiaphas is that you have said so, yes, but let me add a little flavor to it, Caiaphas. I am the fulfillment of Daniel 7. I am the one who the Ancient of Days gives the scroll to. I am that one. I am the one in Psalm 110, Caiaphas, that will be the judge at the right hand of the power on high. I am that one. And so Caiaphas rips his robe in disgust because he believes that Jesus is blaspheming. N.T. Wright, it won't be on the screen, but he says about those two references in, in Daniel 7 and Psalm 10, 1, that is, uh, those two Old Testament references are pointing towards an enthronement in which the Messiah or the Son of Man would share the very throne of Israel's God. He's declaring this reality. He who is now being judged by the Sanhedrin will soon be recognized as himself the judge. Again, you can't take sound bites from Jesus. It's either he is who he said he was or he's not. And he claimed to be God. And if he's God, we have to worship him. If he's not, we have to reject him altogether because he's crazy. Yet he is God. You can't just see him as a just moral teacher. So his death is sealed in that moment. The verdict is set forth. Blasphemy is any time you take on the reality of being God or speaking against the temple, and Jesus did both. And he's sentenced to death as the sun begins to rise. And right after, we see the rooster crow and Peter deny himself. And so this is the text. As we go from late into the evening into the early morning, we see Jesus praying to his father, take this cup from me. We see him get arrested, put on trial, and sentenced to death. And I'd love to end here. 
In the garden, Jesus chose to drink the cup for us. He chose to drink, drink the cup for you. Analogies fail, but imagine. It's hard to compute what's happening here. Imagine being 100 yards away from here to the other side of Paper Mill Road. Imagine in front of you is this dam, and it's miles high, filled to the brim with water. And imagine you see a crack in the dam, and all of a sudden it is broken. The concrete shoots through, and the water begins to rush right at you. And imagine in that moment, something stands right in front of you to carry the brunt of what's happening as that water comes crashing upon you. And it comes and it passes and you are unscathed. So you don't keep this ethereal. In God's justice, he satisfied what needed to be satisfied by drinking this cup. He drank it He swallowed it, he turned the cup over, and he said, it is finished. That's what the story tells us. There's nothing that he can't forgive. There's no one that's too far gone. There's no one who's too broken. See, 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sin. Sojourn family, he drank our cup so that we could go free, so that he could rescue us, so that he could adopt us, so that he could call us his own, so that nothing could separate us from his love. There's a real practical reason for why Paul can say, no, uh, angel or demon or anything can keep me from the love of Christ, because he drank everything that would stand in the way so that you would be his forever. We have confidence As we sit in this room to know that Jesus drank the cup that we deserved so that we could go free. This is what we want to behold in this season. We want to get out of kind of the, the generalities of the gospel and allow it to stand right before us and to see Jesus show us his love. You don't need some angel to show up to you to show you how much God loves you. Just look at this. Look at the night before and the morning of and the reality of the cross and let that declare to you the depth of God's love for you. And he is the most stable reality in the universe. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus is our our high priests, our older brother in this family of God, you were so gracious and we thank you for the way that you sacrificed everything to ransom us and rescue us and bring us into the family of God. We thank you. Father, we thank you that you are the most stable reality in the universe. And I pray this morning As we all come in with different things and pressures and stresses of life, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you are stable and that we can trust you. Be near us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.